Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Bow your heads with me. Uh, once more. Lord, just we see in your word that your mercies are new every morning, and what a great reminder this first Lord's Day of the new year, um, that uh, this new year provides new opportunities for new challenges, um, new trials, new pains, but also uh, a new way in which we could trust in your kindness in the gospel, your gentleness in the gospel, and the hope you give us in your gospel. I pray today, Lord, as we look at Proverbs 6 and the intricacies of our hearts, that you are gracious and kind, but also firm and steadfast in dealing with the slightness of our frame and the desires of our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we're back in Proverbs today. As you just heard read, we took a break for our Advent series. And uh, if you haven't opened up, your Bible will be in Proverbs chapter 6 today. And by way of reminder, I want to uh, bring up what the Proverbs are, right? It's called, the Pro- it's called Proverbs. It includes Proverbs, this book that we're looking in, written primarily by King Solomon. And these Proverbs are not just neat observations or cute moral tales or daily tips for a blessed life. The book of Proverbs gives us wisdom before we need it, wisdom in advance, by showing us the goodness of walking in God's wisdom, and the foolishness of rejecting God. As one pastor, Ray Ortland, put it, the world says, live and learn. Encounter your pains and learn from it. But here, Proverbs is God's grace that it says, learn and then live. God actually has given us something that gives us wisdom in advance to avoid the pitfalls, the dangers, and pains that come from living life in a broken world. And we've been going through the first nine chapters, which are Solomon's prologue to the whole book. And in this prologue, as he's been teaching us, there are actually three passages in specific which deal with the dangers of sexual sin and his desire to equip us beforehand to understand these. We saw one of these texts already in chapter 5. We're going to see the longest one next week in chapter 7. And today we are going to encounter the second one in Proverbs chapter 6. And these texts dealing with sex and sexuality are often difficult for us to hear because they make us a little bit uncomfortable. If this is your first time joining us today or watching online, perhaps you wonder if there's any other church you could potentially be in today. Yeah, here you are. Our modern thoughts on sex have shifted from sex and sexuality being something that you do to it now being something that you are. It's become a centerpiece of your identity, meaning that how we understand sex as it functions in our life is actually, according to culture, the defining facet of who you are, how you act, and how you are assessed by your culture at large. Therefore, when someone, let alone the God of the Bible, starts poking around in our sexuality, we get a little bit anxious. But there's two things we need to be aware of as we approach this text. And the first is that you are far more than your sexuality. God created you with a capacity for sex and a specific gender, but that doesn't mean your life is reduced to it. In fact, you were made in the image of God. 
which means your greatest sense of satisfaction comes not from intimacy with any other created being, but actually an intimacy with God himself. You are far more than your gender and sexual identity. But secondly, this means that because God created us and our sexuality, he actually has authority over the whole of who you are, including sex. Just as he created us for a purpose, so too has he created sex for a purpose. And the wise person, the person who's reading the book of Proverbs, understands that if you use something apart from its intended purpose, it's not long before it harms itself or harms others. You've already heard in the passage that was just read for us today, clear warnings against things that you typically expect a preacher man in a church to warn of, and that of lust, prostitution, adultery. I probably don't have to convince many of you that these are words upon which God has an opinion, that he's against him, that they're considered sin. But I wonder if there might be a disconnect, if we're actually honest, when we actually think about how we feel about these words, these sins, and these ideas. For instance, there's a, a website that was made for the explicit purpose of allowing married couples to seek affairs with other married couples. And on this website, of all of the participants who disclosed their religious affiliation, 50% of those people seeking to actively cheat on their spouse self-disclosed themselves as either evangelical Christians or Protestants. Moreover, a study in 2017 surveyed Christians and discovered that 77% of self-professing Christians affirm that a one-night stand with someone other than your partner is considered cheating. 82% affirmed that frequent sexual encounters with someone other than your spouse is considered unfaithfulness. Statistics are dangerous though, aren't they? Because when we hear those things, those are passing grades. Those are good grades, we'll take those on our biology exams. But what's hidden beneath these numbers of 77 and 82 is the reality of that if from this room we were to gather 10 Christians, there are potentially two, if not three of those 10, who could be actively sleeping with someone who is not their spouse and feel no remorse, repentance, or wrongdoing over their actions. We need the bludgeoning clarity of the Proverbs today because our hearts are still in need of God's wisdom even today. Humanity's technologies have advanced hundredfold since the thousands of years ago when this is written. But the need of our hearts stay the same. Nothing has fixed our problem of sin apart from the gospel which the scripture holds. And what we're going to see in Proverbs 6 are two simple truths that help reorient our hearts in a confused world and protect us from the dangers of sexual sin today. And this is going to happen in two parts. The first four verses, 20 through 24, are going to show us the promise of life in wisdom. And then the latter part, the larger part, that's going to be verses 25 through 35, we're going to see the opposite. That is the threat of death in sexual sin. So let's read together Proverbs 6, verses 20 through 24. This is the word of the Lord. It says, My son, keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. 
and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. So here we see the, our first point, and that is that there's a promise of life in wisdom. At the end of these two, ver- three, four, verse, five verses, I don't know how many that we just read, there it concludes with the promise of life. These are the way of life. And what we see here initially is that everything that follows that we're looking at today, and actually what we've seen, if you've been with us, everything that precedes this is being given as from a father to a child. And so why is it that Solomon is having so frequently in these nine chapters, three specific birds and the bees talks with us, his metaphorical children? It's not because he has this strict code of ethics he wants us to abide by because that was what was familiar to him. It's not because he longs for some bygone era of Victorian sexuality of glory days that we should go back to. It's because he loves us and wants what's best for us that he increasingly comes back to the issues of sex. You see, the role of parenting in the gospel-centered home is to teach God's word to your kids in all areas of life, not out of obligation, but out of affection. Here in this passage, God is calling for us to keep God's commandments and to not forsake mom's teachings because he cares for you. And so to be uninterested, disinterested, or even hostile to this passage is to be uncomfortable with God's very love for you. Love that's revealed here in what he says, the father's commandments and your mother's teachings. And these commandments and teachers are kind of just a summary statement for what stood as the Old Testament law. And in fact, when it says your mother's teachings, that word for teaching is the Hebrew word Torah. That you often hear is just the, the Old Testament law, the Torah. And this teaching included all sorts of practical commands that shape every aspect of life. Perhaps you were with us when we went through Deuteronomy and we saw the vast scope of which these commands actually gave guidance in the intricate areas of daily life. In fact, there wasn't a daily aspect of life in the Israelite community which did not have some sort of intersection with God's concern and care for them in God's law. But far more than God's law being an arbitrary book of practical advice that you can just waltz into Barnes and Noble and pick up and start living your best life now, this book had an entry point. There was a way in which you came into God's grace in Scripture. And that is that God's law required you to start with God's salvation. It assumes a relationship with the law giver. There's an entry point. And these commands and instructions in the the Israelite life actually revealed three relational truths about the God who gives the law. Three truths that are relevant to us as we look at this even as New Testament Christians. And that is first, what we see in the law is that God is faithful to save. God is faithful to save. The law affirms God as a saving God who loves his people and acted to save his people from bondage and slavery in Egypt. When they were oppressed and without hope, God didn't drop down a rule book and say, hey, do these and you guys will be great. Do this and you'll rise up and redeem yourselves. Instead, God saved Israel by grace. Without them doing anything, he brought them out to make them his people. And only after he had delivered them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, did he give them his law. But secondly, not only does the law remind us that God is a saving God, but also that the teachings of God show that God is faithful to satisfy. 
God doesn't just save us and leave us on our own, hoping that we won't make the same mistakes again and again, hoping that we'll know what's best for us. Instead, God in his grace gave Israel a code of conducts and morals and ethics and and judicial systems that were meant to lead them into a society which flourished and not a society that returned to oppression. God's command graciously given in the law was so that these people might have joy, joy abundantly, instead of death and pain and hostility and violence towards each other and towards God. And lastly, not only does the law remind them of God's saving power, God's satisfying power, but it does remind them that God is faithful to instruct. When I speak, it generally means nothing. I have limited authority. When God speaks, it is law. It is command because he is the ultimate authority. When God gives us something, he's not giving us suggestions. He's giving us insight from his all-knowing, kind heart. But that means two things. It means, one, that to disobey God is to disobey an authority, and there is met with certain punishment. But that also means for those who see God's rule, because he is the authority, if we obey, we can be certain of his promise. Isn't the, the value of the promise given or tied up in the authority of the promise giver? If God is the authority and his instructions are given to us, then we can trust that in following his instructions, he is fully capable to bring us the blessing that he has given. And these three reminders of God's salvation, God's satisfaction, and God's instruction were so revel- uh, prevalent and relevant to this Israelite community that they loved it. When we think of laws, down in the foyer of the lobby, there's like constitutional law review books. All of you pass them by every week and think nothing of them. No one has gone up to that law and just started singing the praises of these good laws. But the longest book in all of the Bible, Psalm 119, written by King David, uses all of the effects of David's royal language and metaphors and poetic beauty to say, as we see in Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. These teachings and these commands that God gave his people delighted their heart in knowing that God is faithful to his people. And as Christians, we see this faithfulness all come to pass in greater clarity in Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he's no longer under the Old Testament law because Jesus fulfilled that law for us. In that Old Testament law that's being referenced here in Proverbs, God says, hey, this is the way of safety. If you choose this way, if you continue to walk in these paths, your life will go swimmingly. You'll have peace with me. You'll have peace with those around you. You'll have a flourishing community. The problem was they couldn't keep the law. Their hearts desired to do what was evil and therefore they had hostility with each other and a big problem with God. But when Jesus came, which we just celebrated in Advent, Christ being born at Christmas, Christ fulfilled the law perfectly. He honored God exclusively. He loved others perfectly and he fulfilled all of the righteousness of the law in our place. But... Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 9 that just because we are no longer under the Old Testament law does not mean we are without a law. In fact, he says, now we are under the law of Christ. 
Just as the whole course of daily Israelite life was influenced by the Old Testament commands and teachings, so too is the whole course of Christian life influenced under the law of Christ. We are called similarly to glorify God in all things, to love each other in all things, and to pursue holiness in every aspect of our daily lives. And we can trust that these acts of obedience are actually for our good because we have seen God's faithfulness towards us in Jesus. Just as the Israelites look back at God's faithfulness to save from Egypt, we look back and see the fullness where Jesus didn't save us from physical oppression, but from spiritual oppression. And we see this God and his word is faithful to us. Walking in obedience to God's teaching in the gospel is the most rewarding experience you will ever have. And Solomon alludes to this in verse 22 as we see God's ability to save and God's ability to satisfy. Look at the all-encompassing benefit this is to the Israelite life. Why do they bind these on their neck and have them on their heart? Because when you walk, verse 22, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will walk, watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. If we're paying attention carefully here, we actually see three things in this text which all of us want, regardless of where we are in life. But there are three things which only come when we find ourselves under God's salvation and getting God's word. And here we see Solomon first promising us guidance. When you walk, it says, God's teaching in his word will be a light to your path. It will illuminate the dimly lit moral dilemmas of your life or the dubious ethical decisions you have to make at work. And when you encounter these things, you bring them back to the gospel. You let the light of Christ shine on them and you say, what does God think about this? And you make a decision that pleases God. This provides guidance for all of our life. But the problem is, perhaps you've realized that not everyone wants to do what pleases God. And so there'll be times when you make a decision and you pull that decision into the light of the gospel and you say, this is what pleases God, and you do it, and people around you do not meet that with smiles and cheers. Perhaps even your culture stands opposed to you for doing that. But this is where we see the second grace. Not only does it provide guidance in verse 22, it provides comfort. When you lie down, they will watch over you. It is the gift of a sweet sleep that we have. When we trust we are on God's side, then we trust God even when life seems hard. We trust that God will not lead us into destruction because through Christ, who walked through the veil of death itself, he remained unharmed but rose again victoriously. And lastly, trusting in God's teaching brings us clarity. When you wake up, one of the, one of the stories my wife often tells when we first got married is uh, I think I've stopped now. Maybe it's because when you have kids, you just, sleep is so precious. There's no like gradient for it. But I would, I would be, I would start sleep talking in the morning and I would realize, like I would start hearing myself talk while I'm waking up and I would try to make it into a sensible sentence. <laughs> and so there's one thing, uh, one specific thing where I started saying, uh, spread your wings and fly <laughs> in my sleep. And so I heard that, and I was like, what's a sensible thing to say after that? And I say, because it's time to get up. (laughs) 
spread your wings and fly because it's time to get up. Uh, and, but what happened was, is here I woke up and we have moments in our life where we wake up groggy, confused, uncertain of what's going on. And God's word meets us early in the morning and says, what are you saying? <laughs> this is what's important. Here's clarity in all the confusing situations of your life. In a culture which is following every wind of doctrine, Paul says, or wave of doctrine, here is the clarity of the gospel which anchors us in a changing time. Who doesn't want to be saved by this God? Who doesn't want guidance on life's path, comfort in life's darkest night, and a familiar voice in all of life's confusion? This sounds like the greatest life coach you could ever have. But this is where we might need readjusted because Jesus and his gospel is not a life coach. It's not neat suggestions for a thriving life. And we know this because look at what is said in verse 23. Or for, yeah, 23. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light and the reproofs of discipline are a way of life. To walk, not walk on this path is to receive the reproof of discipline. To be saved by God in Jesus is to also willingly invite and say, I get correction when I am wrong. To be brought back when I am led astray. And why is this? Because look at verse 23. The gospel is no life coach. The gospel is life itself. Solomon is here reminding us of how important it is to not run from the boundaries of grace when we feel obedience to be difficult, hard, or stressing. Instead, he's encouraging us to trust not only in the teaching and trust not only in the command, but to actually trust that discipline that butts up against us when we begin to feel that it makes life hard. Many of us love life coach Christianity. We take what we want and we ignore what's uncomfortable. But this is not a life coach. This is life itself. And he wants you to know so intimately these words and their boundaries because what we see is these words of life are not the only words you will hear. Look at the hinge of this passage in verses 23 and 24. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman and from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Why does God want you to trust in the familiarity of his word even when it takes the shape of corrective discipline? Because these aren't the only words you'll hear. Out in the world you will encounter the words of the fool and the tongue of the seductive adulteress. And this is the second point today. If you do not honor God's words of life, then you face the threat of death in sexual sin. See, my children um, go to bed at night listening to uh, an artist who just takes psalms, passages of scripture, and puts it to music. And actually, the first part of this passage is one of the songs that they sing. But what's interesting is the lullaby stops before we start talking about the adulteress. <laughs> Seems like that wasn't uh, relevant to their nighttime dreams. But it makes sense 
Because it seems, verses 20 through 23 seem really practical. Anyone can take this. We'll sing it to our kids at bedtime. But when we get to verse 24, it becomes very specific and very sexual very quickly. And so why is it that something so general is actually tacked onto something so specific? Well, there's two reasons. One, what we'll see in a little bit, is that because the sin of sexual sin has real consequences we need to be aware of. But secondly, and more immediately, what he's talking about is actually very general. Because what he's saying here is that there is physical sexual sin, but it's also saying that adultery in the book of Proverbs that we've been looking at too is also spiritual, which makes it general. In other words, to not walk on this path is to reject God as a faithful husband. In fact, look at what was just ahead in verse 22. What is this? This is a God whose teaching goes to bed with us. A teaching which wakes up with us. And that means to deny that is to commit spiritual adultery. It's to look at the God who has covenanted himself to you by the blood of his own son and instead to run away from him into the false promise of sin. To ignore God's word for you in the gospel is not simply to choose another flavor of ice cream, another option in the self-help aisle. To ignore God's words for you is to choose another lover altogether. And so when we read passages like this and passages we'll look at next week, there are two layers we need to hold in tension, neither of which diminish each other. First is that we are hyper-aware that all disobedience, whether sexual or not, is flirting with another lover. All disobedience chooses dissatisfaction with Jesus who gave everything to love you and instead chooses the false promise of sin. But secondly, it also shows the danger and the vulgarity of sexual sin and adultery. And what I'd want to do right now is read the rest of this passage for us, and we'll circle back and look at three specific points of emphasis in this text. So this is verse 25. Do not desire her beauty, that is, the evil woman, the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry, but if he's caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He, that is the offended husband, will refuse though you multiply your gifts. So the obvious point here, none of you need to go to a biblical exegesis class to understand the point Solomon is making. This lifestyle is dangerous and it will hurt you. But to better understand this, there are three significant points in here we want to look at as subpoints. And the first is the ease of access to sexual danger. How easy and accessible these dangers are. Looking at verses 24 and 26. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread but a married woman hunts down precious life. In Rudyard Kipling's 
The Jungle Book, which is not at all like the Disney version of The Jungle Book. Uh, Baloo the Bear is warning Mowgli the man cub of the seductive danger of the monkeys. The monkeys are always trying to lure Mowgli away to hang out with them. And Mowgli thinks they're offering him enjoyment, but Baloo knows their plan, and actually what they succeed in doing is only to enslave Mowgli for his little, little man hands to make huts. And Baloo says this to Mowgli about the monkeys. He says, they have no speech of their own, but use stolen words which they overhear when they listen and peep and wait above in the branches when we encounter the smooth words of Lady Folly, we encounter stolen words. And that's why sexual sin is often so powerful in our lives. To put it simply, sexual temptation is rooted in one word, satisfaction. It always promises satisfaction. God our creator has created us to be satisfied in him, but our world has overheard in the branches our language of longing and loving. They've stolen the language and made it their own. They offer not what they can actually provide, but only what you think you want to hear. But the danger of these stolen words is that when our ears hear it, we see in verse 23, our heart desires it. We are captured by an eyelash and we buy in for the simple price of a loaf of bread. And this is really humbling language, especially considering uh, how the first nine chapters of Proverbs were generally used. This was like the rite of passage. This was what the fathers would give to their sons as they're about to go out into the world. And all of us in our youth, perhaps you are in your youth right now, what we like to boast in, our braggadocio, is our strength. We have stamina, we have might, we have ingenuity. But here did you see what it was that you would be conquered by? By an eyelash. The mightiest man bound by the smallest of hairs. And haven't you felt the massive weight of that eyelash in your life? How many of us have had hearts enticed in a desire for what is impure or impure by the commercial during the football game? By the quickest flash of an advertisement on social media? By the person leaving the gym at the same time as you? And now Solomon knows that not all tempters in life are female. In fact, if you're a lady in here, you should read this in terms of the dangers of the seductive man. But he's writing as a father to his son. And in this uh, allegory of using this woman, he's intentionally pointing out the, the eyelash. He's making a, a play on words to show how fickle we are. Our entire body is captured not by chains, not by rope, but by the ease of an eyelash. And more than that, not only is this temptation powerful, but it's affordable. The prostitute, he says, was only a loaf of bread. In our world today, sexual gratification is even cheaper with a digital world at our fingertips and anonymity on the internet. Not only are we quickly and immediately triggered by a stray eyelash, but we can act on it immediately with little to no cost by worldly standards. 
In fact, in our marketplace today, there is almost nothing more accessible and cheap than pornography. We live in a world that understands the power of this. Researchers have found that every year since 1983, ads have become increasingly and intentionally sexual. And these are used to sell services from beauty products to bank loans. What does a bank loan have to do with sexuality? Nothing. Except for the fact they know that sex sells. It entices, it promises, and it whispers satisfaction wherever it goes. And so what do we do with hearts so fragile in a world where eyelashes and bread are abundant? What hope is there for us? Is it this white-knuckling of machismo Christianity and stoic virtue? No. In fact, we look at what was just spoken above in verses 20 through 23, where we see the best way to keep the world out of our hearts is to keep the promise of God in it, in the word of God. What you encounter in the flirty text from your coworker or that preview on Netflix is nothing more than the stolen language of God himself, which is why we need to become so familiar with what is authentic in a world of counterfeits. It is God himself who promises satisfaction. It is God himself who says at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so how do we combat the immediacy of gratification in a sexual marketplace? We do so with the eternality of God's grace for us in Jesus Christ. He has provided everything abundantly Abundantly and in full. We seek to fill our hearts with the promise of God's word in Jesus to displace the false promise of eyelashes and bad loaves of bread. But secondly, we read the second part of verse 26. It begins, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. There's this tension here where Solomon is saying, Prostitution's cheap, adultery isn't. Now Solomon isn't saying that things like prostitution and adultery are more acceptable or okay. Both of these ought to be loathsome and are equally destructive. Both of these prey on the heart that we see earlier in verse 23. But what he's showing here is the immense threat adultery is to the health of any community. And it's here in this passage we see our second subpoint, that is the sanctity of marriage. Prostitution is wrong but adultery is devastating. Adultery breaks the covenant of marriage all over the place. It devastates just as comprehensively as God's word was in verse 22. Here we see the comprehensive pain of adultery. It devastates not only the community, but the family and the individual. Adultery might cost you your marriage. Adultery might cost the marriage of the person you've sinned with. Adultery might cost kids their families. Adultery might cost a community, a safe home and a place of stability. Marriage in the Bible is between one man and one woman for life, and it's not an insignificant covenant. But we live in a world where the center of our identity has quickly shifted. Our identity no longer comes from perhaps on just a moral level, the good of a community, or from a spiritual level, God himself, but instead our identity comes from inside of us, and the chief inner self is our sexual desire. Now when we hear this, again, when, when you put it that way, so to speak, everyone knows something's broken. But I wonder 
How many of us, myself included, have been hammered by the waves of culture so long that it's beginning to shape the bedrock of our own hearts? How many of us see adultery in our sitcoms or our novels and think nothing about it? How many of us read in a tabloid at the grocery store of some celebrity who cheated with their spouse with this other celebrity and we're actually kind of excited now that so-and-so is with such-and-such and and whatever musical collaborations might follow? How many of us in the deepest recesses of our hearts have actually thought that if this freedom could bring us happiness, then who could blame us? In fact, it might be that in today's culture, they would cheer you for following your heart and taking what you want. But here we are reminded of God's design for fidelity in marriage. And I want to be really careful when we issue any sort of broad calls for repentance. But I wonder if we as a church need to repent over the ways in which we have subtly allowed culture to shape our expectations of sex, sexuality, and marriage, and not the word of God. Could it be that we, like the false teachers in 1 Timothy, have seared our own consciences and are no longer offended or uneasy at what should make our stomachs clench? In fact, the Old Testament law held that if a couple was caught in adultery, they could potentially face the death penalty. By God's grace, we're no longer under that law. Christ has paid the death penalty for us all. But I wonder, when we think about this, how many of us are more offended at the Old Testament's punishment for adultery than we are at adultery itself? And why is it? Why is it? If you're not a Christian, maybe you're here today and you're like, this is everything I thought a Baptist church would talk about on a Sunday. And this confirms why I'm not coming back until 2022. Why does God care about sex and marriage? Because marriage and adultery strike at the very heart of the gospel itself. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter five that marriage is a placeholder and a metaphor. It was invented not for you and your spouse, but for Christ and his church. The true husband who faithfully loves his faithless wife by laying down his life for her to purchase her back so that they might faithfully love and serve each other. To be laissez-faire about fidelity is to be laissez-faire about the gospel which saves us. Christians don't care about marriage because marriage is worth dying for. Christians care about marriage because the gospel is worth dying for. And this can manifest itself in your own life and in your own sphere, whatever political or social component you want. But first and primarily, God holds it responsible as to how this manifests itself in your own life. What your view of marriage and fidelity is by showing chastity outside of it and fidelity inside of it. And this is so important because we talked earlier how sexual sin and no sin can ever define you, but it can certainly destroy you. And this is the third point Solomon makes today, the inevitable end of adultery. Read with me again, Proverbs 6, 27 through 35. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? 
Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he's caught, he will pay sevenfold and he'll give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse though you multiply your gifts. So here we see the inevitable end which awaits those who forsake the way of life and choose the way of folly. He uses a couple of illustrations. He says you can't carry fire and not be burned. You can't walk on coals and not be singed. You can't play with sexual sin and not be harmed or even destroyed. He then uses this secondary example. He says, if a thief is hungry and needs to feed his family, people might, can wrap their minds around it. They might have sympathy, empathy, understanding that life was hard and that's what he needed to do. But they also understand that if he's caught, he stole and he will be punished accordingly. His point is not that people who commit sexual sin are given sympathy from a community and that their sin is understandable. In fact, quite the opposite. He says in verse 32, in contrast to the thief who steals because he's hungry, the adulterer steals because, verse 32, he lacks sense. There's nothing noble about it. But instead, it affects your reputation, your wealth, your livelihood, and provides a disgrace which Solomon warns will not be wiped away. Not to mention, you now have one, if not two, potentially angry spouses who stand opposed to you. This jealousy of a jealous husband, he alludes here, will make him so furious that he will deny any sort of compensation. The Old Testament law uh, not only said that death might be the, the end for the adulterer, but it says that perhaps the one who committed adultery can provide for the, the offended husband a financial gift and buy his freedom from it. But he says at this point in many of your lives, when this happens, you are so indebted and jealousy is so strong that you can multiply your gifts, but you can do nothing to erase the mess that your sin has made. You stand under a death penalty against an offended party who intends to see the punishment out. Now, what do we do at this point at the end of Proverbs 6? We do two things. The first is that all of us, no matter how old we are, no matter what gender we are, no matter our station in life, we learn to stand in fear of sexual sin. Our world takes every opportunity to shape our conscience regarding what we believe about sex and sexuality. Attempting to normalize pornography, premarital sex acts, hookup culture, adultery. But in reading this, we should feel the weight of sin. We should, in fact, by God's grace, perhaps begin to feel the burning coal that we have clutched too closely to our chests. But we should also notice the grace that comes, again in verse 23. 
You see, Jesus himself says, you could have avoided the eyelashes and you could have never bought the bread, but to have lusted with a woman in your heart is to commit adultery. We have all fallen prey to this, which is why we must all look at the grace of discipline in verse 23. What stands for us is the correction of the gospel right here, right now. To be here is to receive the grace of discipline which calls you to repent, to turn from your sin and to come to Jesus. Discipline which acknowledges the foolish and destructive impact of your sin on others, on yourself and your view of God. But discipline which responds by grace to God's work in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all find ourselves amidst sexual brokenness and sexual sin because we have spiritually committed adultery towards God in every area of life. And you, David says later in Psalms that what man can ransom the price of his own life? You can multiply your gifts to try and pay back the debt you owe to God, but your gifts will never be enough. But this is where secondly, we have the privilege of looking to the gospel. You see, God is the offended spouse of every sin, even the simplest ones. And yet in the gospel, the husband whom we've sinned against has paid the ransom price in himself, in Jesus Christ. Your gifts can do nothing to remove the burden of sin, sexual or otherwise but the gift of Jesus is enough to ransom you back into God's grace. In this room are people who have not only been spiritually adulterous towards God, but people who have been physically or emotionally adulterous towards people other, or towards their own spouses. And to those who are broken, there's a husband who welcomes you back not by the power of your own works, not by your own ability to make it right, but by the gift of his son in your place, calling you back by his faithfulness and his gentleness. Jesus redeems us from our sexual brokenness by reminding us of his faithfulness to save. Faithfulness we see in the teachings of his commands and his gospel. Faithfulness which when we encounter in life gives us the motivation to trust that this God is always and forever for us if we are found in Christ. This God, though he curbs what culture tries to inflame, does it for his love for us and his desire to make you increasingly satisfied in him. This God cares for your heart in ways no other human ever could. And this God today is calling you to him wherever you are to turn, to have a heart which desires not what is forbidden, but what is freely offered in grace. So today we stand warned of danger, but we stand in awe of what is offered on the other side. May we be humble enough and wise enough to accept the correction of God and the grace of Jesus and to walk in the light and to sleep in the comfort and to live in the clarity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our world tells us that nothing defines us like our sexual desire. 
what a prison that is. Lord, we thank you that even the deepest desires of our hearts can be redeemed, ransomed, and reoriented through your son who died the death we deserve. The faithful spouse dying for the unfaithful spouse. And Lord, I pray that when we see all you've done to save us, that we might trust how obedience satisfies us. That we would not fear the walls of your grace beginning to refine the affections of our hearts because we know it is for our good and it is for our life. Lord, we pray that none of us think this to be an individual effort but that we work not only with the benefit of the Holy Spirit, but we work in the community of the local church to share our burdens with each other, to call for help, to express the weight of the eyelash that sits on our hearts so that others might come and bolster us, not with the eyelash of false promises, but with the pillar and buttress of the truth.